Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you may be listening. Thank you very much for tuning in to the All You Listening Now podcast, where I will talk about anything and everything. I'm your host, Johnny, back at it again for another week. Hey, yo, my shout out this week goes to the good people who live in both Oakland, California, and Chicago, Illinois. Now, why you may ask, I'm glad you did because the reason why I'm giving these two cities shout outs is because the first is folks in these cities are starting to realize that the folks they actually voted in don't really give a crap about what y'all are talking about and will do radical stuff even though you voted for it like defund the police which is causing crime and other types of looting and stuff to happen in your cities and then taxing the rich like somehow that money is going to get to us working class folks and then the second is that at the very least threatening to vote out or recall the people or the person in office that they voted in Now, if I were a betting man, I would put my money on, you know, the people in those two cities to just, you know, continue to vote the same way they always do again. But hey, maybe people are starting to wake up from this coma that's called being woke because people, no matter how woke you are, you would have to be comatose to not see what's happening in this country right now. However, nevertheless, nevertheless, wherever you may be listening. I certainly hope you have had a very, very good week because I know that I have as well. All right, ladies and gents, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy day to download and listen to the podcast. As you all know, the podcast gets played anywhere. Podcasts are being played nowadays by searching for all you listening to our podcast. Also on YouTube, I am there as well. You can find me by searching the exact same name. I upload content there. So if you see anything there that I would say you're interested in listening to, if you haven't checked out the page, please do that for me. Like, subscribe, hit that notification bell over on YouTube. Again, like the show, rate the show, subscribe to the show on the podcasting platforms. Doing both of those things helps push the show to new listeners, helps promote the show. And I've said this time and time again, and it's absolutely true. You are my greatest form of advertisement. And I appreciate y'all for rocking with me. So look for those options on those different platforms. In the description of the show notes, I leave timestamps for every segment of the show. So that way, if you're a little cross for time, don't have the opportunity to listen to the entire show. You can time skip your way straight to the favorite segment of your choosing. So look for those options in the description. But on today's show, let me start off with this. So it seems like ever since, let's say mm, 2016 or so, if not earlier, and certainly since 2020, there has been this push in America to make everything that is deemed wrong by, well, most folks, on the left anyway, racist. When I say everything, I do mean everything. From laws that we have to the quote-unquote system, even if they are run by people of color like in Chicago and Detroit, heck, all the way down to breakfast has been called racist which actually leads me to the title of this segment. If you live in America and for my listeners in other countries, you might have in your country something called credit scores. 
In America, I like to call them how good are you with borrowing other folks money, paying it back and managing debt scores, which is really what it is. That, ladies and gents, is the name of that game and anyone can play it and be successful with it. But here in America, since minority groups statistically don't play the game very well, we are told that the reason why we don't and the reason why we can't get loans or credit cards with decent APRs, amongst other things, is due to, well, you guessed it, racism. Now, I've touched on this before, back on episode 119, but when you look at credit scores by race, Asians, a minority group, has the highest average credit score coming in at 745, Whites, of course, after that at about 734. Hispanics, another minority group, coming in at 701. And then there's my people, Black Americans, sitting at around 677. And then, of course, Native Americans actually had the lowest, um, 617. But I believe a lot of that has to do with them having their own things. So maybe they actually don't care a lot about, you know, good credit scores and things of that nature. With that said, I think the people that say that credit scores are racist really just want to say that it's against black people because otherwise, if it was racist, every other group would be like black people. I mean, we're a whole 24 points behind Hispanics and 68 points behind Asians, both minority groups. For years, we were told that we weren't given the tools and the knowledge to have the advantages like white folks. And that would be true, I would say, you know, plus 20, 25 years ago, but not today in 2023. It's common knowledge, if you want to find it, that settling a debt, setting a budget, staying away from debt, like payday loans and making sure you don't use credit cards like they're free money, can have you in a good financial spot. There's plenty of info out there about how to actually fix and keep a good to great credit score without even having to pay anybody. But even though all of those things hold true for how to get a good credit score and maintain your finances, nope, we can't due to racism. So we're told. I listened to this young man who looked around my age by the name of Ashley Bell, who stated in this interview that he believed that credit scores and the system that it's built from is racist. For anyone out there listening who doesn't know who he is, he is the co-founder and CEO of Ready Life, a fintech company that has a goal to bridge the gap in wealth with minorities, which I actually like and respect a great deal. That said, since he has been in the financial field his whole adult life, and I think even his parents before that were in the financial field, when he said credit scores and the credit system was racist, I couldn't believe that a man with his knowledge would say such a thing. I mean, for starters, if it was racist, why are you succeeding as a black man? And as mentioned earlier, you have been in the field your whole life and even worked as the White House 
Policy Advisory Board for Entrepreneurship and Innovation under the Trump administration. Funny how the more and more I find out about the guy people said is racist, you know, and how racist he was and the racist things he did, had a lot of black people working under him and helping him to actually improve stuff. But back to the point, why would he make a statement like this? In this country, it's my belief that this kind of messaging lately has continued to assist with holding the black and many other minority groups back. Why, as a minority, would I even try my hand at the game if I believe it's rigged against me? There have been plenty of examples in history, mind you, that shows that even though racism existed and in some ways is still going, when it comes to credit scores in the financial world, in the present day, racism and that is hardly an issue. For example, some of you might have heard of the famous yet tragic story about how Black Wall Street back in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was burnt to the ground by racist white people. The part of the story that gets left out conveniently, it seems, is the point that at the time of the city getting burnt down, it wasn't called Black Wall Street then. It didn't get that name until afterwards. As a matter of fact, the place that was to be called Black Wall Street got that name after being rebuilt over the next five years, all funded by black people. No government assistance needed. And this was at the height of racism, one could argue. How could this actually happen? How could black folks back in the 1920s have it figured out, but not today? How was it that pre-civil rights, black household wealth compared to white people, since it's the only measuring stick we use in this country, even though, you know, trying to research anything, you know, about black wealth, it always just equates it to white wealth. But anyway, back to the point. It actually shows that the wealth gap had actually dropped to about seven to one ratio from the 60 to one ratio that it was right after slavery and the Emancipation Proclamation. And then if you fast forward to after civil rights was passed until today, that gap has closed to wait. It's the same. And it's actually slightly regressing. So. Did America get more racist when it comes to financial deals after civil rights? I mean, it would have to be right for the wealth gap that was starting to close rapidly pre-civil rights, now going the opposite way. So it has to be racism, right? I mean, that's the argument that people could use. Me personally, I don't think so. Matter of fact, according to data from the NAR, and that's the National Association of Realtors, reads as such. Quote, according to NAR's profile of home buyers and sellers report, 7% of black and Hispanic home buyers were denied mortgages compared with the 4% of white and 3% of Asian applicants. While the main reason the mortgage lender rejected their application is the debt to income ratio, black and Hispanic home buyers reported that they also have low credit scores. End quote. So even the data 
shows that there isn't any races to this, just simply a matter of financial mismanagement, which is a fixable issue, but it won't be if we don't actually focus on how to fix it instead of, you know, focusing on the system, racist, illogical thoughts that are actually being done now. For every story that people point to, the main one people point to is stories like Wells Fargo that wasn't lending to blacks and other minority groups. There was that story. And for every Wells Fargo story, I can find plenty of stories that shows that not even black owned banks wanted to lend to black people for the same reasons the NAR points to. Is the system perfect? No. Can it be done better? Absolutely. But it doesn't change the fact that until black and other minority groups learn to actually play this game better, then we are going to continue to see what we're seeing right now. I want all of our financials to be in the ballpark of other groups. So if there is racism in the system, if that is truly the case, it can actually be pointed to and proven. But with it currently being nowhere near other races of people and crying racism when we can't get loans, or our interest rates are higher is a fool's errand at best. If black folks like Ashley Bell and others were able to work the system to get their success, then others can too. We just need the knowledge about how we can actually do so to win. It's time to actually stop the race hustle and actually hustle up on this financial game. But ladies and gentlemen, let me switch gears to another topic that if you're still watching the MCU, and maybe you are, maybe you're not. Because <laughs> I understand that some people have been disillusioned with a lot of the things that Marvel has done. But in case you haven't watched any or all of season two of Loki, just to let y'all know, there will be spoilers in this segment. So keep that in mind. So after watching the first five episodes and the six to come later this week, I want to actually talk about Loki season two. I want to talk about why I think that if you're even interested in the things that are to come in the MCU, that you need to actually watch this show. And I also want to talk about why I believe this show is great and why some of the things we see with Loki's character, how it actually plays in the Marvel comics. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in this segment. But so early on in Loki season two, we see him time slipping as it's called. And I actually really thought uh, that this was the same as what we saw in Across the Spideyverse, which is out on Netflix, by the way, if you're one of the few people who actually did not see it in theaters. But we learn in the first episode that it's not the case. For anyone wondering the difference between the two in Across the Spideyverse with Miles Morales and the other uh, Spidey folks that are shown glitching, as it was called, that's actually due to them traveling to another universe that isn't their own, wherein what we see in Loki season two in time slipping, it actually deals with him being pulled through time that can end up being anywhere at any point in time in any universe. In the show, we get introduced to several new characters like Ouroboros, played by Kihu One, and Victor Timely, played by Jonathan Majors, who I actually talk about on my Breaking Down Each Variant of Kang um, video over on YouTube if you haven't checked that out. 
But I think another uh, good touch to the show was giving us some look into their lives prior to the TVA. We know and we get to see somewhat about how he he remains once he won the multiversal war, pulled each character of the TVA from their lives on the timeline and wiped out their memories from season one. So to bring all that together and not leave it open or untouched to me, I think was a big win for the fans and a big thumbs up to the writers there. The other part about the story um, that is great, in my opinion, is that each character we get actually feels like they're important to the show and they actually add value. The one major character that didn't feel that way, in my opinion, in the show was B-15 and Casey to a degree. Later in the episode, they would play a major-ish role, but it kind of felt like it was forced and, and here's what I mean by that. So at the end of episode four, we see them all in the TVA trying to stop the loom from malfunctioning and they weren't successful. So it appeared that this was going to be the end of the multiverse. Which, by the way, I'm not even going to lie, the way that it actually happened, I didn't actually see that coming. I promise you, once they got Victor Timely into the TVA and into that suit, you know, to go out there to kind of, you know, stop the loom or to repair it, I thought they were actually going to be able to fix it. And when he walked out there and was disintegrated, I was like, whoa, that, that's <laughs> nuts. I didn't see that coming. It was a, it was greatly written and a time moment uh, to actually have that happen. Then episode five starts and every single one of them are gone except Loki standing inside the TVA. Later in the episode, we find out that everyone had been, that everyone had been sent back to their lives prior to the TVA and Loki's time slipping to each one of them randomly in this episode. Now stick with me. Um, I'm actually getting to a point here, but you know, fast forward a bit. We learned that each person he's actually time slipping to has sort of like a time, like stamp signature, um, that is important for Loki to actually get to get back to the TVA and control his slipping. At the end of the episode, he gets all of them together only to find out he didn't need them to help control his slipping since he mastered that while all of time was actually being destroyed. Loki could have mastered that without B-15 or Casey having to be there, which is why I believe their character's importance were more forced than they actually had to be. By the way, this is a perfect segue to actually talk about how Loki is going to play into the greater MCU as a whole. So with Loki mastering time slipping, he can now basically go anywhere at any point of time to change it, which is actually a pretty OP power. I think that it's even more OP than anything we have seen in the MCU so far because it's akin to a power that the one above all, who you know is basically the God of Marvel, right, has which is the ability to make any story be what he wants it to be, at least in the moment. I bet you that Loki season two is based on a character of his that we got in Marvel Comics called the God of Stories. This version of Loki we got in Marvel Comics and who I believe we are seeing now in the MCU started with a comic called the Siege on Asgard where Loki sacrificed himself trying to stop the Void from destroying Asgard and he died. 
Prior to his death, though, Loki actually found out that no matter what, his character was always meant to be mischievous and cause chaos, something he was told back, I believe, in the season one series of Loki, if you remember. So in Marvel Comics, he wanted to change that. In, I believe, a Loki one-shot comic called Siege Number 1, he found a way to convince Hela, who if you remember her from Thor Ragnarok, it, he actually convinced her to remove his name from the Book of Hell. So when he died, instead of going to Hell, he would actually end up being able to be reborn, which is actually what happened after he died. It's how we got the Kid Loki story in Marvel Comics. Anyway, after being reborn, getting his memory somewhat restored by Thor in Thor issue number 617, once he found Loki living on Earth, I believe somewhere in Paris or something like that, he was basically at this point able to change his fate completely and have it be different from what it had always been in Marvel up to that point. Skipping over a lot of the story, so sorry to my knowledgeable comic book readers out there, but once the uh, reborn kid Loki let his prior self known for the mischief and such take over his mind, because that was kind of a ploy that his older self had before he was, you know, killed, he let him actually take over his body, and that happened in the Journey into Mystery number 622 story, that in that story, after basically taking over or kill Loki's mind and well, essentially, you know, kind of, I want to say killing them, but wiping them out, if you will. That old Loki, actually, he actually felt bad for his actions, something that had never actually happened to him before. Later, he found a place called the House of Ideas, which led him to change any story in any moment. This is what we are seeing in the MCU in Loki season two, I believe. Now, how this ties into the MCU as a whole, I think will have something to do with the Secret Wars movie that we will get. I know that we, you know, we got the Secret Invasion TV show that nobody liked to watch, but I think that none of what we actually saw in that show is actually going to play a role in that movie. I believe that Loki and a team that he will actually, you know, build through, you know, using his powers to time slip to different points in time, will he will get them together to actually help fight Kang and all of his variants to stop them from taking over the multiverse, and that will be secret wars. You know, pretty much a war fought out of sight of people in order to stop all the Kangs from basically taking over the complete multiverse. That is just my theory. And if it is true, that is amongst other reasons why, in my opinion, I think you should go watch Loki season two if you have not. It was a it's a great show so far. It's certainly the best of this latest bunch. So if you if you watch it on Disney Plus, think you're going to enjoy. But ladies and gents, that is it. That is all I have for today's show. Thank you very much for taking time out to download and listen. Again, if you enjoy the content you're listening to here on the podcasting platforms, like the show, write the show, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your family, loved ones, relatives, neighbors, all those good people. I greatly, greatly appreciate that. But until next time, I hope you all have a good one and I'll talk to you all later. Peace.